are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we are picking up this evening with step number 25 on, on humility. And I'd say we're about halfway through the step, perhaps. And uh, we're picking up with number 32, about midway down the page. If you're following along here in the text, again, that's number 32 on page 185. St. John writes, it is impossible for snow to burst into flame. Still more difficult is it for humility to dwell in an unorthodox person. This is something which the pious and faithful achieve, and then only when they have been purified. So it's a, maybe a little bit of a misleading statement because of the way that we read the word orthodox in our day. We typically associate it with a, a particular group of Christians or uh, right belief, uh, orthodox in that sense too. And certainly that is, is true, but I think the way that John is actually using it here and how it reads is the the uh, if we understand the etymology of the word orthodox, it's it's really right glory, orthodoxa, and uh, so it's one who's been purified, as he says here at the end of the of the uh, saying, uh, that is able then to have the kind of humility that he has been describing here, uh, because as we've mentioned here over the past weeks. What he's describing is a characteristic of what we see in Christ himself, what has been revealed to us about the very nature of God and godly love and life. And so it's only one who has been purified uh, of the passions, but also uh, of the, the way that our ego often will take center stage, is uh, able then uh, to really experience the, the fullness of this virtue and the, the joy, the life, the love that it brings to the soul. Uh, so I think if we take a too, too narrow understanding of the word orthodox, we lose this beautiful sense of it. It's right glory. It's a participation in the glory of God is what John is talking about here. And that certainly fits much more with how we've been reading uh, his discussion of, of the nature of humility. And certainly it's consistent with what follows as well, too. Uh, number 33. Most of us call ourselves sinners and perhaps really think it. But it is indignity that tests the heart. This is a hard one. Because on one level, I think there is a willingness on our part, uh, John is telling us, to recognize the, the, re the truth that we are sinners. Uh, but it's another thing to, to be made humble, to experience indignity, and to allow ourselves to embrace it and for that to, to form and to shape the heart, uh, to free us from, uh, again, the kind of egotism I think that we often cling to or the illusions about self that we have when we are humbled by our circumstances. And it's not only, I think, uh, the insults of others or mistreatment of others, but how we are often humbled by life. Those who experience the indignity 
that life shows us at times uh, are made, made humble by it. But it's hard to go through life without having that experience to realize that we're not going to be here forever and that we don't have you know, an unlimited stream of energy uh, to keep us going. And there's always somebody brighter, stronger, whatever it might be, uh, or just being brought low by illness, you know, where we lose control of our days. You know, all of a sudden we're not, you know, marching in accord with our calendar and fulfilling all the things that we want to do. And we're brought low by illness and, and have to rest, to stop and let go of those things that we so often find our identity in. And uh, for some people, illness can be a very difficult thing because when you're stuck in bed, uh, you know, it's you and God, unless you divert your attention uh, to other things, which people often do, to veg in front of the television or in front of the uh, computer. Uh, but uh, if you read the saints, the illness, uh, when we are humbled uh, in this way, that often our prayer can be very deep when we stand before God in, in such a, a state. And that when we do get sick, we shouldn't let off of our prayer role. I mean, it might be have to be done from our bed, but nonetheless, we should be praying uh, rather than sort of uh, taking a leave from it at those at those times. Number 34. He who is hastening to that tranquil harbor of humility will never cease to do all that he can and will drive himself on by words and thoughts and afterthoughts and various means, by investigations and researches and by his whole life by prayers and supplication, meditating and reflecting and using all imaginable means until with God's help and by abiding in humiliations and the most despised conditions and by toils, he delivers the ship of his soul from the ever recurring storms of the sea of vainglory. For he who is delivered from this sin is easily forgiven all the rest of his sins like the publican in the gospel. So maintaining or hold, hold, maintaining our vanity uh, or holding on to uh, you know, vainglory uh, takes a lot from us in the sense of energy, time, attention. And there, there's something that is uh, enslaving about it. Uh, that we're held captive to it, that it does not allow us to have peace because we're constant, constantly conscious of how we are perceived by others or by ourselves. And uh, rather than uh, simply being concerned about how we appear before God, and when we are able to let go of vainglory and simply acknowledge our poverty before him, then we rest in him. Uh, come to me, all who are heavy burden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, that simply acknowledging our need for him is something that lifts, lifts us up and gives peace to the mind and the heart. And I think we spend so much of our lives striving after things that exhaust the mind and the body or that fragment the mind too, and keep us from being focused on the things that will ultimately lead us to peace. He will get into this when uh, in the next step, he talks about discernment, uh, which follows on humility. You know, once the, the mind and the heart is living in the truth, then our capacity to see the truth, not only about ourselves, but the circumstances around us brings us a kind of freedom too. And often not being able to discern the will of God, we thrust ourselves into circumstances, work, all different kinds of things that we think that we need for our identity or for joy or for peace. Whereas a simple hidden life in Christ can offer a person a kind of perfect peace. 
uh, it's often we are the, the worst taskmasters. We drive ourselves uh, by a kind of unholy violence of busyness. And uh, when we let go of that and we can be satisfied with what God has given us, then a kind of peace can emerge. We're no longer desperately seeking uh, to find value for ourselves outside of who we are in Christ. So inevitably, there's something very liberating here. And so a person who's really seeking this will do everything he can to keep himself from being pulled back into the stormy seas of vainglory. And we all know it. There's no peace there. We become ever so attentive to how somebody's looking at us or responding to us, whether they think we're bright or stupid or irritating or whatever it might be. And uh, uh, to be freed of that uh, is a liberating experience. Okay, number 35. There are some who all their lives use the bad deeds previously done by them and for which they have received forgiveness as a motive for humility, thereby driving out their vain self-esteem. Others have in mind Christ's passion, regard themselves always as debtors. Others hold themselves cheap for their daily defects. Others, as a result of their besetting temptations, infirmities, and sins, have mortified their pride. Others, for want of grace, have appropriated the mother of graces, that is, humility. There are also people, if they still exist, who for the sake of the very gifts of God, in the measure that they receive them, humble themselves, and so live as to account themselves unworthy of such wealth, and each day add it to their debt. Such is humility, such is beatitude, such is the perfect reward. So the one who is truly blessed is the one who receives every day the gift of life, of love that God gives, and so adds debt to debt. And it keeps them in this perpetual state of humility. And uh, so there are many paths, John shows us, you know, that one can keep their eyes fixed upon all the things they did in their youth. And it's a humbling reality for them uh, to keep those things in mind. Uh, but the greatest of these, I think he tells us, is that when we are able uh, to see the fullness of God's love and his mercy, what we are given in every moment of our life, that we constantly feel indebted to God, that all is grace for us at that moment. And uh, when we see that, uh, we are truly humbled. Okay, so much different uh, vision of humility. I mean, it, it, John keeps taking us deeper and deeper and moving away from it simply being a kind of self-contempt uh, into a participation in the very life of God, blessedness that uh, there is a joy that emerges uh, if, through this virtue that comes through participation in the very life of God. And it's amazing how we often flee from it. And I think uh, it's because of its greatness, I think that the evil one works on us so hard in regards to things like vainglory and pride. Number 36. When you see or hear that someone has in a few years acquired the most sublime dispassion, then conclude that he traveled by no other way than by this blessed shortcut. So if we see someone, maybe even relatively young, who has reached this state of being free of the passions, whose life is uh, truly ordered toward God, then our only way of understanding that is that they've taken a shortcut. And the shortcut is the virtue that contains all the other virtues, which is, is humility. The, if that's perfected within the heart, then all the other virtues become perfected. 
and uh, and so one loses their attachment to all the things that are are contrary to them, which is also something that elevates and should elevate humility in our eyes. That uh, as we think about our spiritual life and what we are seeking to foster in our minds and our hearts daily, it would be what John is speaking about here. Gratitude for the love, the mercy that's given at every moment, but also the acknowledgement of our, our being in debt to God on so many levels that we, we do not even see. A holy team is love and humility. The one exalts and the other, supporting the exalted one, never fails. So he who humbles himself will be exalted. We put ourselves in the position of allowing God to raise us up when we acknowledge our need for him. And it is love that uh, perpetuates that experience. We're uh, free from our focus upon self or the things of this world. And uh, uh, we then are free to love God uh, without limitation. And so uh, this allows the, the, the virtue never to, to fail for us. Love never fails. So the, it becomes a holy team. So again, if there are two, two virtues then that we want to foster, it would be the, these two. Any questions or comments so far as we move along? Okay. Number 38, contrition is one thing, self-knowledge is another, humility is another. So isn't that interesting? Uh, there, John makes distinctions where he thinks they're important. Contrition would be the sorrow that one experiences when one realizes that they've turned away from God or turned away from love in some fashion. And it allows us to uh, uh, turn back to the place of healing. Uh, Self-knowledge is another. So to see oneself truly, uh, but that can still know its limitations. Uh, our conscience being the primary guide there for us to know with God as much as that is possible for us. But humility, I think John putting it in the order that he does here, takes us a step further. Again, it draws us in to the fullness of truth the fullness of life and love. That even if we were to uh, know a kind of perfect sorrow and, and know as far as possible and acknowledge the truth about ourselves, there are always going to be limitations to that. It's when God lifts us up uh, through humility that we begin to participate in the fullness of truth and the fullness of life in him. We begin to taste something of the kingdom itself of of true blessedness as he's already mentioned here let's see number 39 contrition is the result of a fall and so we acknowledge in sorrow again our having uh turned away from grace and turned towards sin he who falls is crushed, and he stands in prayer without boldness, but with praiseworthy audacity, as one who is shattered, steadying himself with the staff of hope, and using it to drive off the hound of despair. And so, uh, again, this is where the Eastern Fathers, I think, offer us this uh, incredibly va valuable insight into uh, what humility is for us, but also compunction, contrition for our sin, that it is to be something that eventually gives way to that restored uh, union with God or communion with him, that it leads us uh, to repentance and opens us up to God's healing grace and hope, uh, even though our hearts might have been darkened, uh, uh, because of our because of the sin, 
uh, hope allows us to hold fast to the promises of Christ. So our faith might be uh, darkened, our capacity to see things clearly might be darkened because of the sin that we've committed. But hope uh, allows us to hold on to the promises of Christ that despite the wound of that sin, we keep ourselves turned toward God until we can know the fullness of that healing, but also it keeps us away from falling into despair. Uh, sometimes hope is the only thing that we have available to us. And uh, at certain points where all has gone dark uh, because of what we've experienced in life or because of the depth of that sin, uh, often it is this uh uh, this kind of raw endurance that are, arises out of our our hope in what the Lord has promised us, even when we can't see it. It's what keeps us for, moving forward. And I think it's often uh, the, uh, uh, the, the virtue that is uh, something that we don't talk about enough. Uh, faith, love, we, we talk about quite a bit. Hope is often the one that seems to be ignored or maybe not understood uh, what the nature of it is and how it's distinct from the others. It's so important in the spiritual life. Anthony writes, this is where Nietzsche's emphasis of will is important for us. Uh, how might you describe that? What do you have in mind? Well, as I recall, he was talking about using a, some kind of a parable maybe about a fellow who hoped for goodness when everything else just seemed crazy. Mm -hmm. um, Nietzsche himself maybe knew a little bit about craziness mm -hmm. and, and, and maybe he was trying to draw on something beautiful that was still inside of him. Right, that's a good insight. That's Thanks. right. And so I think, you know, certainly in our day too, I mean, when we look around, the, everything does seem to be crazy and on the verge of collapse. And, uh, but I think even in our day to day life, I think we've been in those times where things go dark for us, whether through, again, loss or illness, whatever it might be, a sense of isolation, uh, too. And uh, God can even use this to draw us to Him even more, to cling to Him more. But it is often hope that allows us to do that to hold fast despite the fact that we feel that isolation even sometimes from him. Louise writes, I resonate with this definition of humility. We owe everything to God. I resonate, see less to humility as defined in the Evergetinus as self-deprecation. The former focuses about, uh, focuses about God while the latter focuses on the self. Well, John, uh, actually in the coming sayings <laughs> talks about uh, the abasement of self self-abasement too and there is a kind of danger in it and uh uh if we don't connect it i think uh with the the context of what it is that we are stri striving for and we we can go too far some somebody talked to me a little bit about this um I had quoted something from Pope Shenouda on uh, the monastic life being akin to the angelic life and that the monks take the angels sort of as their models and uh, they, you know, rise to such an extent that they're living more and more on the, the, the level of the spiritual and less attentive to the things that we are often more focused upon, you know, whether it's food, sleep, comforts you know that uh they find themselves wrapped in the pursuit of god and the desire to, for god that those things even seem to drift away and they seem to go on very little sleep and things like that and you know a person brought up you know that that almost uh sounds you know that there's something that almost sounds off about that that we aren't angels and of course, the individual's right. You know, we we are not angels, and yet, nonetheless, I think what's being what's the focus there is this pursuit uh, and focus upon God completely. That the monk does that. You know, that he makes a conscious choice to let go of the attachment to everything in order to be fully focused upon God, 
in an angelic, one can say in an angelic way. And uh, the self-abasement, I think, is uh, we have to be careful with it in order that it doesn't become self-hatred, but rather this acknowledgement of the many ways that we cling to vainglory and pride that uh, or overestimate our, ourselves, our goodness, our, our qualities. And uh, yet we have to be careful that it's we don't take it out of the context of the larger picture of what we've been talking about, which is being drawn into something greater, you know, working with everything that we can, as he describes, uh, I think at the top of page, where was that? Or maybe it was on the previous page that we, we are doing everything, meditate, all of our meditations, everything become becomes geared to pursuing this virtue of humility and oh, and staying away from vainglory. It was on the previous page and uh, prayer, supplication, meditating and reflecting through all imaginable means, abiding in humiliations and most despised conditions. All of these things are meant to do one thing only, which is to free us from the attachment to those things in order that we might be more perfectly attached to God and come to know that blessedness. But if we strip it from that context, then it can become simply self-hatred or a kind of uh, masochistic vision of the self a negative anthropology, if you will, a negative view of, of the human person, rather than the very high view of the human person that is revealed to us in and through the incarnation, that this is what it is to be a human being, and this is what we are called to participate in, the very life of the Holy Trinity. And so whatever it takes on our part to unmoor ourselves from the ego, uh, and the vainglory that it produces is is worth it, uh, because what we receive is an everlasting love. But you could see again, you know, if we emphasize the one without the other, we're going to fall into despair and despondency. And so this is why prayer always has to be a part of the ascetic life, uh, because if we lose sight of God. And we're pursuing those things as end, ends in themselves to become the most pitiable of indi individuals. But uh, good thought. You know, I, I think we, we have to be very careful about it. Uh, Daniel Allen writes, how does this conversation about self-abasement and not hatred factor with, in, with John talking about the prison earlier? Uh, again, you know, I think John was writing for monastics and for those who uh, had left the world completely, had embraced a certain vowed life. And these were the individuals who had broken that vow. So it is as if they had let go of that which was most precious. And I think John presents us often with the extreme vision of it. That here are those individuals, because we could, on the previous page that I mentioned, number 34, we could read those and even agree with the words. Uh, but what does it really mean to desire God above everything? And, uh, and to, to be those who really see what we've been given in Christ. That we are, are those who move... Uh, day to day, acknowledging the, the perfect love and mercy that God gives us. And so we see debt being added to debt. What it is, what is it for a person to live in that reality, but then to have turned away from it? What is the depth of that mourning? Because if you remember, this is what John is described, discussing when he's describing the prison. You know, those who mourn, you know, blessed are those who mourn, who mourn perfectly, uh, and repent perfectly of that sin in order to uh, take hold of, again, what they had cast aside so easily, especially in their eyes, uh, after having seen it. So uh, I think John does this on purpose. I don't think it's hyperbole. I don't think he's making up 
the place of the prison. Uh, begin, but again, I think unless we understand the monastic life as this kind of angelic life and the that relatively few are called to it and that it is the focus is on the spiritual that they're living like spirits even though they aren't angels that they're living so fully for god that a person who turns away from this then what would their response be when they acknowledge uh what they've let go what they let go of and uh so when you when you see perfect love and have tasted that 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 life and love uh, and then still find oneself turn away from it it's going to pierce the heart like nothing else and uh and so again i think we want to avoid a kind of masochistic uh, approach to the writings of the fathers or john and you know uh, admittedly that can be hard at times. And I think that's why reading it slowly and holding it all together in our minds and hearts becomes very important. Uh, that what we are pursuing and what we've been invited to is the participation, I'm sorry, I'm not speaking very well here tonight, the participation in perfect love. And uh, it's only this that elevates us beyond the limits, I think, of human understanding. Uh, because otherwise it's always going to see absurd, seem absurd or extreme to us at best. Okay. So let's see, where did we leave off here? Number 42. No, I'm sorry. Number 40. Self-knowledge is a true idea of one's spiritual growth and an unbroken remembrance of one's slightest sins. And so one you see here, he's laying out for us the meaning of the distinctions that he made in the previous saying, uh, that self-knowledge is that we begin to live more and more in the light of the truth. And so we see where we are and how we are progressing in the spiritual life, and but also where our attachments still lie. Uh, and uh, and along with this comes an unbroken remembrance of this, the slightest sins, that uh, if the more that we live in the truth, you know, the, the more that we become aware of the things that become impediments to our fully experiencing that love. So he's talked about contrition here, self-knowledge, and then finally in 41, humility is Christ's spiritual doctrine, noetically introduced into the inner chamber of the soul by those who are accounted worthy of it. It cannot be defined by perceptible words. This might be the most important state, statement in the whole step, because what John is telling us here is, is that it's, it's something that's taught to us by Christ, and not only in his words, but in his very being, that is revealed to us, noetically introduced into the inner chamber of the soul. So when the mind and the heart is purified, it is given to us as gift. So humility is not something that we seize and reach out and take hold of, we prepare the mind and the heart as much as we can through contrition and then through self-knowledge that have been defined here. But humility is accounted to those who are worthy of it. It cannot be defined by perceptible words. So we wouldn't even know what to ask for uh, because it is beyond what we can define or what we can understand because of the limitations of our intellect. It's only love itself can reveal it to us. And it's revealed to us uh, perfectly on the cross and in the Holy Eucharist. I mean, if we get back to this idea of self-abasement, you know, the self-emptying that takes place, again, again, through the incarnation, the word through whom all things have been made becomes infons, 
a little tiny infant incapable of speaking, incapable of words, uh, and the perfect innocent one, all perfect holy one is crucified as a heretic, as a criminal, put to death, judged by the creature, judged by the sinner. And then not only takes upon himself the burden of that sin, but then nourishes us to everlasting life through the gift of his own spirit, but also of his body and blood and the Holy Eucharist. He nourishes us upon humility, love, truth itself in order that we might be transformed by it. Uh, and so in, in many ways, there should be nothing more humbling than receiving the Holy Eucharist because we are receiving that point at that point. We should not be, I mean, if you receive in the Latin rite, you know, taking hold of the host. That's why we make a throne or receive it on, on the tongue in, in the most humble way. We are receiving the gift of God of himself. And, uh, and we're not seizing it or commodifying it, but we humbly come to receive it as, as gift. Uh, and only after we've been made worthy of it by, by the grace of God and taking hold of that through, through striving uh, in the ascetic life. So I'd circle number 41 for oneself because I think uh, if this allows us, I think, to read everything that John is saying before this and after it with a kind of clarity that humility is something that is revealed to us. It's part of the godly life. And it is something that is given to us that brings us to a participation in the very life of God as well. And if that doesn't alter our understanding of humility, uh, I don't know what can. But we should never speak, I think, of humility in the same way again. We might have to fall silent when somebody asks us what humility is, but that's better than giving an inaccurate definition. I'd, it might be better to say, go read step number 25 of the Ladder of Divine Ascent and talk to your spiritual director about it or pray about it uh, or receive Holy Communion. You know, I think these are all the things that teach us in the most powerful way. But it, it's interesting, you know, I've read this. This was the first book of the Eastern Fathers that was uh, given to me outside of the Philokalia. And it was sent to me out of the blue by a cousin, an Eastern Orthodox uh, cousin of mine, a few years younger, uh, along with a prayer rope. And I would never have come across John Climacus' Ladder of Divine Ascent on my own, but it was right before seminary. It was, you know, a graced moment that he he sent me this this book. So I've read this. This will be, let's see, probably almost thirty five years. I've been reading this, and uh, a little over thirty years. And uh, and but I've never read it like this. And I think again, I think it's <clears throat> it's something about reading it in a group uh, like this that helps to unpack it, uh, because I think our understanding of humility is formed and shaped by so many things that we thought about it, or so much of what we've heard in sermons and how we've heard other people talk about it, and I think it, it lacks the clarity with which. John speaks about it, but also within the context of the whole work. And so as we make our slow progress through it, and here now in step number 25, all the way in step 25, he unpacks for us something about this virtue that uh, far exceeds anything that we would ever understand on our own, and that I certainly didn't grasp for over 30 years until reading it, that something, and I think part of it is also our pairing of this with the Evergatinos at the same time, that we're being presented with this image of humility that is, is allowing us to see it as something that lifts us up. That as we're falling into this, what feels like an abyss of this almost like a loss of self-identity, we're letting go 
of this false self where what we're actually falling into is the abyss of divine love. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And so what often feels so uh, discombobulating, painful, uh, fearful to us is something that brings us to the very heart of God. And uh, so what John is offering to us in this one step makes reading the, the latter over and over and again worth it because it's life it can life changing there's no going back now folks you're stuck <laughs> there's no unreading this <laughs> okay so that was number 41 okay so Anthony, just a few comments here. Anthony writes, oh, so to grasp at humility, to be avaricious for it is masochism. For all good things are, are actually gifts, not seized upon like a miser. That's right. I think, you know, when we acknowledge our poverty, what we're doing is acknowledging the truth. We're not beating ourselves up. We're simply allowing ourselves to see with a kind of clarity. We're letting the blinders fall away. And that might be painful to us, but it's also curative. It's medicinal that we are, are brought uh, to a greater state of freedom. Yes, but to try to seize upon it in an avaricious way, uh, which we can do very easily in the spiritual life. You know, we can put on the airs of humility. And you remember I talked about the, the different kinds of Pharisees and the broken and bloodied Pharisees who walked with their eyes down so that they wouldn't gaze upon a woman or anything that they might think is sinful so they would fall into ditches and run into trees and things like that. That's a kind of, you know, this is the, that's the kind of thing that Christ really became angry about because it was this distortion of that which is truly a gift. And it was trying to seize for oneself, uh, as well as to put on a mask. It was hypocritical to put on this mask of humility. Number 42. He who says that he fully oh, feels the fragrance. All Pardon? of you. you back. Hold on for a second. Number 42. He who says that he fully feels the fragrance of such myrrh, yet feels when praised, even a momentary movement of the heart, or understands the force of the words, that man, let him make no mistake about it, is already mistaken. So even feels the fragrance of such a myrrh uh, of when praised. There is something that is seductive about that. You know, it's like something in the air that draw, you know, those cartoons where somebody's being drawn along by their nose by a smell. You know, that's sort of what vainglory does. You know, we get this whiff of it and we're some from somebody giving us even, you know, the smallest bit of praise. And and if we see that movement within ourselves, we're already, again, sort of taking for ourselves what is the gift of God. And so something even so subtle, uh, you know, the a fragrance of myrrh and the feeling that it gives rise to. Number 43, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. I heard someone say with heartfelt conviction, for he knew that human nature cannot ordinarily abide in praise without loss. My praise is from thee in the great church, that is, in the future life. And before that, I cannot accept it without danger to myself. So the praise that matters is the praise that comes to us from God. And until we stand before him, then we have to hold suspect the, the praise that comes from any source, even if it comes from someone close to us, because the, it's not that the person who's close to us is in the wrong. 
so much as what the evil one can do to, to us through it. He'll make us take hold of it, again, as something that belongs to ourselves or arises out of our own natural abilities or qualities rather than something that is God-given. And so there always is a danger that stands close to us uh, when we are moved by it. If the limit and rule and characteristic of extreme pride is for a man to feign such virtues as he does not possess for the sake of glory, then it follows that a sign of deepest humility will be to abase ourselves by pretending to have faults that we do not possess. It was in this way that he behaved who took into his hands bread and cheese. Likewise, the exponent of purity who took off his clothes and free of passion went through the whole city. Such men take no account of the fact that they are a cause of offense to men. They have received power through prayer to reassure all men invisibly. But he who is anxious about the former will show a lack of the latter. When he, I'm sorry, when God is prepared to attend to our prayer, then we can do anything. So when a person is, is humble, truly, then there is this kind of freedom that we see in the holy foals that are being described in this paragraph that they could walk naked through a city and be mocked. Or I, I looked for the story of St. Simeon uh, about the bread and the cheese. I just couldn't find a, a direct, uh, I'll keep looking for it, uh, a, a direct story about it. Uh, but not, um, except that he was one of these individuals who, you know, had embraced this path of being a holy fool that, uh, the normal path for the one perfect in humility is going to be, and that brings them greatest joy, is to be seen as foolish by the world. And just as we would see one who is faking virtue and really seeking the praise of, of men is going to find the greatest joy in that praise, that they're willing you know, to be a hypocrite, hypocrite just to be acknowledged by others as being virtuous. And so, you know, the greater the humility, the, the, the greater freedom there is to be considered ridiculous by those in the world. So again, you know, this puts into, draws in a certain light, the holy folds for us too. You know, that they are not spectacles for amusement. That's how some may seem them, see them. Uh, but where this emerges from is, again, that perfecting of humility, that having let go of the world as the defining principle uh, for one's dignity and identity. And so his last sentence makes more sense when we see it in this way. When God is prepared to attend to our prayer, then we can do anything. You know, when, when we've become humble, that God is ready to respond to whatever we ask, then anything is possible. We can move mountains. Uh, you know, there's this new uh, center that has started in uh, Pittsburgh that you know, I just think it's going to be this blessing for a lot of people. It's the St. Charbel uh, Center, uh, started by the Maronites, and it was once called the Epiphany Academy, uh, run by a very holy uh, priest, uh, Father Adrian von Kamm and Dr. Susan Mudo. Uh, but he had passed away years ago, and she's uh, closer to the retirement, still, I think, uh, very much present at the center. But the Maronites uh, knew that this was coming on the market. And the priest whose church is right behind the property of this, the Maronite church, you know, basically ran to the bishop and said, this is what we have to do. And God bless him. The bishop saw the wisdom in it, you know, that this was, you know, a, a risk from a worldly perspective, a risky move, you know, because of the investment in it. 
but you know those who know Saint Charbel, it, you know, understand what can be accomplished in a, a moment. What seems impossible that uh, this devotion to Saint Charbel has been growing. I've been meeting all these people here in the United States who fi find themselves developing this devotion to him. And here he was, this uh, hermit in Lebanon. Uh, so a monk that lived this hidden life, uh, but after his death, tens of thousands of miracles have come through his intercession. And, uh, you know, I think that's where the real blessing will come. I think there will be great, it's a formative institute uh, where they'll be doing things like this, you know, reading the fathers. And, but I think what real blessings come will come through the deepening of faith that comes through uh, the intercession of this great saint. And then all things become possible. He, he is this saint of humility, you know, that, knew that all of it, his dignity identity came from God and uh and we see the fruit of that uh through what God continues to do uh through him long after he's left this world and I think we'll see the same thing here and um I was at, Lori went with me on Monday to the center. It was the opening day. It was sort of a soft open. Uh, but I met the Maronite priest. He had come down and ever so kind and, and helpful. And I said to him, you know, about six or seven years ago, around the time my father passed away, you know, I developed this devotion to St. Charbel. I just heard about him, you know, saw a movie about him, read about him, and was drawn to him. And now, you know, six, seven years later, uh, the St. Charbel Center is being opened here in Pittsburgh. And I said, that's a minor miracle in itself. And he said, it's not a minor miracle. It's a, it's a miracle, you know, that this should emerge here. And, uh, and so, um, you know, if you have the opportunity, there are going to be one, many wonderful things there, but even more so, I think to to look to Saint Charbel, read a little bit about him. There's a wonderful movie on uh, YouTube about his life. Uh, I think just get to know him a little better. You won't, you won't regret it. It's open to the public now. Uh, yes, from nine to four every day, and every day there will be divine liturgy there, confessions, opportunity for spiritual direction. I think those hours will grow uh, once they, uh, the Dr. Ann Bork is the director and she's pulling all the priests together and others who are involved in the running of it. And they have somebody who's there from those, uh, for those hours, a subdeacon, a, a young Maronite man. Uh, and, but I think eventually they'll, they'll have hours, you know, a lot of hours there as well, but it's adoration and other devotions too. Beautiful place, though. And they're building 17 retreat rooms there, too. So it's going to become a retreat center, too, another for, for Pittsburgh. So a great opportunity for us. Okay, enough of my PR uh, for the uh, Charbel Center. Uh, number 43. No, number 44, I'm sorry. If the limit and the rule and characteristic of, no, I'm sorry, wait, did we read that full one? Yes, we did, I'm sorry, number 45, I apologize. It is better to offend men than God. God rejoices when he sees us running to meet dishonor, so as to crush, strike, and destroy our vain self-esteem. So it's almost as being described crushing the head of the serpent, because this is, uh, from whom, you know, vainglory and pride is born within the heart. And so the dishonor uh, that we experience being offended by those in this world only serves to, to crush the very thing that prevents us from experiencing the, the fullness of that life. 
And so we should uh, move as quickly as we can uh, to embrace it and rejoice over it. Number 47, no, I'm sorry, number 46. Such feats are the effect of flight from the world carried to the highest degree for only the truly great can bear derision from their own people. Do not be surprised at what is said, for no one can climb a ladder in one stride. So this is the highest degree he's acknowledging. So not only are we being nourished here on solid food, but what we are being presented with is this virtue and his perfection that we see most of all in Christ, but uh, especially in his saints who have freed themselves from all the passions, but also from all self-esteem. And so not to become discouraged, you know, that we aren't going to leap up to the ladder in one stride, certainly not up to step number 25 quickly. Uh, but uh, we have to realize that what it's going to mean for us is perhaps a derision from our own people from those that we might expect would be close to us, supportive of us even, uh, or even within the church at times, uh, that we can be allowed to experience this, this kind of derision in order to humble us in certain ways. Uh, because you know, often we look to those within the church for kind of support and encouragement and uh, it can really be a humbling experience when we lose that. And we see the saints go through this very often. I've brought up Philip Neri here, but so many of the saints have went through the same experience that uh, he, his teaching, his joyfulness, his prayerfulness was infectious. And so a lot of people were coming to hear daily preaching, which was not common. And we're coming to confession regularly and receiving communion regularly, some of them and many of them daily as well. And so the exercises that he was engaged in with, with the people uh, became suspect to the point then that uh, the Pope uh, made him uh, cut off all of his ministry and including hearing confessions for a period of time. Uh, and then the Pope died and another one was <laughs> uh, elected and, uh, and then Philip was, you know, freed from those restrictions. Uh, it's always a dangerous thing to, uh, to criticize the saints, uh, you sort of take your life into your own hands at that point. Uh, but, uh, but so many of the saints went through this, that from the church ex experienced this dishonor and, and uh, being treated as, you know, that somehow they were enemies of the church rather than those who loved, loved it. But they all, the one thing that was true about them is that they bore it with humility. You know, they did not rail against it. Philip Neer didn't rail against the Pope. He allowed himself to be silenced and until it was God determined to remove it. Number... 47. By this shall all men know that we are God's disciples, not because the devils are subject to us, but because our names are written in the heaven of humility. So this is a reference, as it's noted in the, in the margin, to John 13 and to our Lord's own words. But, you know, what is most important uh, for us as disciples of Christ is not, you know, certain powers given to us, uh, even over the devils themselves. And if you remember the uh, apostles when they're sent out or when the disciples are sent out to preach, they come back and they're all rejoicing because the demons are subject to them. And he warns them then, you know, don't rejoice over this. You know, I saw Satan himself fall from heaven. Rejoice rather that your names are written in the book of life. And so John is saying the same thing to us, you know, whatever spiritual gifts one might have, you know, we are not to rejoice in those again, as if they are of the greatest 
value, you know, what, what is everlasting is love. And, uh, and what brings us to that is this heavenly or holy humility. This is what we should be most focused on. Okay. So that brings us to uh, 8.30. That was a lot tonight, uh, certainly a lot to meditate upon. And so uh, don't be afraid to go back over and reread it multiple times. But uh, thank you for hanging in there. Uh, with me on it, and uh, it's, you know, I'm often unpacking these things for myself too. So thank you for your patience. Uh, so have a wonderful week, everybody. And while we close, as always, with the Our Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.